in this video the technical infeasibility of a populist insurrection I want to look at the um, Constitution of the United States and particularly the uh, Declaration of Independence and we're asking is if there is any legal foundation for a state to declare a populist uprising, a rebellion or insurrection. The United States is a country that was founded on an insurrection and it is written into the um, Declaration of Independence. The um, right of the people to take up arms against a oppressive government. The question really all hinges on who gets to declare the government oppressive. Do we have to convince the government that they are illegitimate or oppressive? Or is it the people in a populist revolt? This being said, we're not saying a resurrection or riot or rebellion is a good thing. And it might also be said that when the people oppose the results of an election, it behooves the judiciary to take it a little bit more serious than what was evidenced in this last United States election. I believe the judiciary are responsible for this whole farce because they should have held a hearing. They should have had a nationwide investigation into the claims, not outright declare them the claims themselves fraudulent or of no um, importance, no weight, no substance. So this is what the um, present video is just looking at, is if the government ever has a constitutionally valid claim that a populist uprising is uh, insurrection or better uh, constitutionally invalid insurrection because for me according to the writings of the founding fathers and the constitutional documents it's technically impossible to conceive of an insurrection that is constitutionally invalid that is not covered by the Second Amendment and the um, traditions that have been put into the um, Federalist Papers. Anyway, um, what we're saying here, to summarize, is that by virtue of the Declaration of Independence and other founding documents, it is technically impossible for the people to engage in a constitutionally invalid or a constitutionally unprotected
insurrection. In Federalist 10, Madison lays out the main differences between a republic and a democracy. It might be wise to note that in discussing a democracy, Madison appears to be referring to what we now would call a direct democracy rather than a representative democracy, which is what a federalist government is. This is more clearly laid out by Madison in number 14. The error which limits Republican government to a narrow district has been unfolded and refuted in preceding papers. I remark here only that it seems to owe its rise and prevalence chiefly to the confounding of a republic with a democracy, applying to the former reasonings drawn from the nature of the latter. The true distinction between these forms was also adverted to on a former occasion. It is that in a democracy, the people meet and exercise the government in person. In a republic, they assemble and administrate it by their representatives and agents. A democracy, consequent, consequently, will be confined to a small spot. A republic may be extended over a large region. The importance of this distinction was expressed earlier in number 10, and this is again by Madison. The two great points of difference between a democracy and a republic are, first, the delegation of the government in the latter to a small number of citizens elected by the rest. Secondly, the greater number of citizens and the greater sphere of a country over which the latter may be extended. The effect of the first difference is, on the one hand, to refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may at best discern the true interest of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will at least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations under such a regulation. It may well happen that the public voice pronounced by the representatives of the people will be more consonant to the public good than if pronounced by the people themselves, convened for the purpose. On the other hand, the effect may be inverted. Men of factitious tempers, of local prejudices, or of sinister, sinister designs may, by intrigue, by corruption, or by other means, first obtain the suffrages, that is the vote, and then betray the interests of the people. The question resulting is whether small or extensive republics are more favorable to the election of proper guardians of the public wheel, and it is clearly decided in favor of the latter by two obvious considerations. In the first place, it is to be remarked that, however small the republic may be, their representatives must be raised to a certain number in order to guard against the cabals of a few, and that, however large it may be, they must be limited to a certain number in order to guard against the confusion of a multitude. Hence, the number of representatives in the two cases not being in proportion to that of the two constituents 
and being proportionally greater in the small republic, it follows that if the proportion of fit characters be not less in the large than in the small republic, the former will present a greater option and consequently a greater probability of a fit choice. In the next place, as each representative will be chosen by a greater number of citizens in the large than in the small republic, it will be more difficult for unworthy candidates to practice with success the vicious arts by which elections are too often carried, and the suffrages of the people being more free will be more likely to center in men who possess the most attractive merit and the most diffusive and established characters. It must be confessed that in this, as in most cases, there is a mean on both sides of which inconvenience will be found to lie. By enlarging too much the member of electors, you render their representatives too little acquainted with all their local circumstances and lesser interests. As by reducing it too much, you render him unduly attached to these and too little fit to comprehend and pursue great and national objects. The federal constitution forms a happy combination in this respect. The great and aggregate interests being referred to the national, the local, and particular to the state legislatures. That's the end of the quotes from the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers and the founding documents declare the United States to be a republic in which direct control is taken out of the people's hands and placed in a representative body with express provisio and understanding that just as direct democracy can lead to the tyranny of the majority, republics are prone to small cable, wresting control of ultimate power from the people. The Declaration of Independence permits insurrection against an unlawful government, a provision backed up by the Second Amendment. What nothing in the, in the Constitution allows for is the overthrow of the people's sublime rights as a supreme political authority. All jurisdictional authority exercised by the constitutional and legislative offices is provisional. There is no absolute, unequivocal, unqualified right to exercise power in the U.S. other than that power held by the people. To call the uprising of the people an insurrection is to make the same mistake King George did. The people cannot wage an insurrection in the U.S. This is jurisdictionally and constitutionally not only improbable, it's impossible. It is akin to forbidding the owner of an establishment the ultimate right to refuse entry to a guest. Indeed, so far as political power is concerned, the authority of the people is that of a nation's right to protect its borders. The political power of the people is unsullied and inviolable and no agency of the government may breach, abrogate, or revoke such power and authority as held by the people. Because it is the people who define the legality of the government, the government is the only legal, if acquiesced to, by the people. The people alone define the legitimacy of a state, and it is absurd for the lesser to accuse the greater, which is the people, of insurrection. The only recourse for a government under threat of rebellion by the people is to step down and hold an election, 
which the people are willing to acquiesce in. Anything else is an insurrection by the government, by the illegal people who have, in the eyes of the people, gained control over the reins of power. Regardless of the situation in other places, in the United States, the only possible form of insurrection is by a government oppressing the people and defeating their will and demand for an election. This demand cannot be limited or revoked or constrained by a government who, by virtue of the rebellion, and the refusal to acquiesce by the people is on its face de facto deemed illegitimate. To dare squash or attempt to squash, quell or make null and void, a rebellion by force of arms is to compound the error of opposing the people's constitutional right to overthrow what they deem to be an illegal authority. A government that cannot govern, govern without military involvement is by that very measure illegal, that is, by its need to resort to force of arms to legitimize its authority, it is de facto and prima facie illegitimate. By what authority does a government that receives its power from the people usurp, make void, and challenge the will of the people, especially the sacred right of rebellion is held by the people? Indeed, where in the Constitution or other founding papers is it written that if the people choose to exercise their right of rebellion, which is nothing more than the people reclaim, reclaiming the right of liberty, has the government the right of nullification? The rebellion of the electorate rests on an assumption that the government is illegitimate. By what right does the government deemed illegitimate prove legitimacy? by the force of arms directed against the people. The people always retain the sovereign right of rebellion. There is no legal means by which the government can abrogate, rescind, or reduce, or make invalid this right. The effort to make the rebellion, nay, the ret retributive activity of the people, constitutionally invalid and criminalist to all intents and purposes a crime against the people. It can be screwed and construed no other way. This, above all crimes, is a high crime and indeed treasonous. The attempt to revoke or nullify the right of rebellion against what is deemed illegitimate authority is above all challenges and behaviors unconstitutional. Any effort by any government of the United States that seeks to overthrow the sovereign right of the people to so choose its office holder, albeit in a manner of its own choosing, is by definition insurrectionary. That the Democrats are in power does not make the Constitution invalid or in a state of hiatus. The very act that led to the founding and establishment of the United States cannot be rendered null and void because it is inconvenient and compatible with the agenda of a progressive government.